It's Monday, December 9th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. The FBI says it's working under the presumption that the Florida Naval Base shooting was an act of terrorism. Investigators are still trying to unlock any motivations and investigating claims that the shooter showed videos of mass shootings at a dinner party only days before the attack. Ginger Gibson, political reporter for Reuters, joins us for this and what to expect this week in the ongoing impeachment inquiry. We may have articles of impeachment ready to be voted on soon. Next, an investigation done by Columbia Journalism Investigations is showing that many popular dating apps do not conduct any criminal background or identity verification checks, and known sex offenders have been found using these apps and assaulting women. Tinder, Plenty of Fish, OkCupid, and other free dating apps owned by Match Group are not checking users and potentially leaving some vulnerable to sexual assault. Elizabeth Pachani, a fellow at Columbia Journalism Investigations, joins us for more on this story and what happens when you report an instance to Match Group. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. We are, as we do, in most active shooter investigations, work with the presumption that this was an act of terrorism. This allows us to take advantage of investigative techniques that can help us more quickly identify and then eliminate any additional potential threats to the rest of our community. Joining us now is Ginger Gibson, political reporter for Reuters. Thanks for joining us, Ginger. Thanks for having me. We had a shooting at the Naval Air Station Pensacola on Friday. There was an aviation student there from Saudi Arabia that opened fire in a classroom killing three people, and the shooter also died later. Right now, the FBI is saying that they're working under the presumption that this shooting was an act of terrorism. Ginger, what do we know about this so far? The FBI has acknowledged that they think this is an act of terrorism. This was a student, essentially a pilot from Saudi Arabia who had come to the United States under programs we have that help train our allies in order to learn to fly Pensacola, as you know, you may not know, is where much of our U.S. Air Force training happens along with on the West Coast. Um, What we know is that he opened fire. He was killed by police. But police are also concerned that some other Saudi Arabian nationals who are part of this program might still be a threat, two of which is locations there. According to reports, they're not sure of where they are. They left the area prior to the shooting. There's also been reports that there might have been Saudi nationals recording him while he was shooting to videotaping this. There's still a lot of questions, and this is surely going to continue to be something that the FBI is monitoring closely, and that it creates a lot of nervousness. Um, you know, it's sort of been suggested that Americans have grown a bit immune to shootings uh, in our country. They have happened with such frequency. But when it takes a shift into the potential that it could be ongoing, other places could be targeted. I think that continues to drive a lot of fear and concern. Yeah, they say that that uh, young officer also had kind of like a dinner party or something earlier where they were, uh, he and some other Saudi aviation students were playing videos of mass shootings. Uh, you know, you mentioned that there possibly could have been recordings. They also said he went to New York uh, at a time, including Rockefeller Center. But they, they haven't tied him to any larger type of terrorist group or anything like that, that he might have become radicalized on his own. I mean, something like this has to put a strain on the relationship between the U.S. and Saudi Arabia, right? That's right. The relationship between the two nations is already strained. Um, It has hit a number of difficult points, particularly the Saudis accused of killing an American resident journalist in one of their embassies. 
There wasn't much by way of President Trump in response to that. He has seen the Saudis as an ally. He has also pushed very hard to sell American weapons to the Saudi Arabians, something he saw as an economic boom to the U.S. defense industry. However, this is going to renew questions about whether the Saudis are an ally and what they're doing and what the Americans are doing in terms of selling weapons to them. We're going to get a lot more movement on the impeachment inquiry going on this week. We might see articles of impeachment ready to be voted on by the end of the week. The Judiciary Committee just released a report on Monday. They're going to start hearing evidence and really start nailing down what the articles of impeachment are. I've heard anywhere from two to four different articles that they might be drafting up. That's right. We understand that the Judiciary Committee and their staff was working through the weekend. They are writing these articles of impeachment that would be brought to the full committee and then the House for a vote. We know that this week we're going to get new testimony, again, not fact testimony, but we're going to hear from the counsels, the attorneys of the staffs of both the Judiciary Committee and the Intelligence Committee to explain what they found and what their determinations are. And we would expect these articles of impeachment to be made public maybe within the next week and voted on before Christmas. The president's personal attorney, Rudy Giuliani, a central figure in all of this stuff going on with Ukraine. He was actually there in Ukraine just this past week. The president said that he has some type of a report that he wants to deliver to Congress and the attorney general, William Barr, about stuff that he's uncovered during his latest trip there. He's saying that the American people will learn that Biden and other Obama administration officials contributed to the increased level of corruption in Ukraine. Uh, what can we possibly expect from something that Rudy's going to present to Congress? One would think that if you were one of the figures at the center of an impeachment inquiry into your client, that you might put your head down and stay out of the headlines. But that is not the case uh, with Rudy Giuliani. We're lots of questions about what this report will include and further what kind of credibility he's going to be able to bring to it. This ongoing saga of trying to attack the Bidens has resulted in an impeachment inquiry. So I think that likely the people who are going to believe what's in this report are predominantly people who already believe Trump, already believe he's been maligned unfairly and attacked unfairly by Congress. And people who don't believe that are going to say, you know, you're you're the president's attorney and there's not much credibility we should give to this report, given your background and your role in this whole process. Yeah. I mean, everybody's so dug in. It really has. There has to be something there really good for it to change anybody's minds. And then the last report that we're expecting, the Justice Department's internal watchdog is going to release a report on Monday. Also, This is uh, when they were looking into how the Russia probe got started, and people are expecting it to say that there was a legitimate reason for the FBI to open the probe, but they might poke some holes in some other practices and procedures that might have went wrong along the way. That's right. We have been told already there's been reports, leaked findings in this. They let those who were subject to this uh, in review read the findings before they were made public. So we expect the DOJ to say that the FBI and the Justice Department did not act wrongly when they started investigating members of President Trump's campaign, but that there were some failures of process along the way. We also know that an attorney at DOJ who had submitted some of the forms in this process erroneously filled out the forms, has been disciplined for that. But according to reports, we understand that that the conclusion will be that even though he made mistakes, the reports were still done correctly, they were still justified, and that there was no what we expect to hear, political motivation in the investigation into Trump's associates. 
Ginger Gibson, political reporter for Reuters. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. On the free products, there is no screening of the sex offender registry or background checks. So a lot of this started actually in 2011. There was a woman named Carol Markin who basically made it her mission to improve matches safety practices because the site had connected her with a six-time convicted rapist. Joining us now is Elizabeth Pichani, a fellow at Columbia Journalism Investigations. Thanks for joining us, Elizabeth. Thanks for having me. Match Group, who owns Match.com and about 45 other online dating brands, you guys did a 16-month investigation into some of their practices and some of their free apps, some of the other brands that they have, places like Tinder, OkCupid, Plenty of Fish, have let known sex offenders use the app. It's been this weird pattern of people getting caught doing something bad, maybe going to jail, getting reported, and then things fall through. And then these people end up showing back up on these apps. Elizabeth, tell us about this big investigation that you did and some of the data that you found out from it. Basically, we started by just looking at the issue of sexual assault that occurs off of an online dating app or platform. There's no current government data or agency that's really tracking this. So we started by creating our own database, really, by pulling news clips that we then verified with police reports or court documents. And we found that there was about 150 cases of sexual assault off of an online dating app or site. And the majority of these cases were on Tinder, Plenty of Fish, OkCupid, Match.com, and Match Group owns them all. So that led us to say, what are the safety measures of this company? Then we began to see a couple of lawsuits and really it kind of went from there. Match.com, for its part, and some of the paid services that they have, they do perform background checks on people, but where the majority of this is happening is on their free apps. Like I said, Tinder, OkCupid, Plenty of Fish. There's no background checks going on there at all, right? Correct. On the free products, there is no screening of the sex offender registry or background checks. So a lot of this started actually in 2011. There was a woman named Carol Markin who basically made it her mission to improve Match's safety practices because the site had connected her with a six-time convicted rapist who had raped her on her second date, she told police. So Markin sued the company, and the result of that was these sex offender screenings that Match.com agreed to initiate. So the next year, Match.com also made similar promises to California Attorney General Kamala Harris at the time. And this was in 2012. And it was an agreement on what was considered best industry practices. So Match was agreeing that screening the sex offender registry was a best industry practice. However, as Match.com became the publicly traded Match Group and they acquired Tinder, they acquired OkCupid, they weren't extending this promise to their free products. And they don't even screen the paid premium features of people who use things like Tinder. Okay, so Match Group, they're going to be having revenues in the billions, $1.7 billion maybe this year. Mm -hmm. Their top app, Tinder, has 5.2 million subscribers. And that's just Tinder. Obviously, there's the other ones. So there's millions and millions and millions of people using these apps. And it just seems like from some of the reactions that you've gotten 
from Match Group on why they don't screen a lot of people. It is this game of numbers. Their simple answer for why they don't screen so many people, especially on the free apps, is that there's just not enough information submitted on those apps to actually perform some type of background check. I do believe they could maybe request some of this information or there's ways to obtain it. I think about Herb Vest, who in the 2000s started a dating app company called True.com. And it was really sort of his mission to make it screening against the sex offender registry and doing background checks. And he felt that really it was part of both his business model, but also kind of his moral philosophy to do these screenings. And at the time, he paid about a million dollars to have unlimited use of backgroundchecks.com and rap sheets and whatnot to uh, screen his users. I mentioned that it seems like there's this pattern of people getting caught and then ending back up there. There was even some cases where there was a sex offender that was on OkCupid, despite appearing on some of these other registries that if Match had gone through and looked up, he would have showed up there. Tell us some of these other instances, some of these stories that you've gotten from people and their experiences. I think a lot about Carrie Godier, who was using OkCupid when she was matched with a man named Michael Miller, like around May of 2014. And the following year, Miller pleaded guilty to sexual assault charges from Carrie's case. And he got 10 years of probation with sex offender stipulations. Yet, even after this, Carrie, you know, told OkCupid that he was convicted and that he was on OkCupid's site. Yet, she says that she frequently saw Miller on OkCupid, and part of his probation sentence included not using these dating apps anymore. Nevertheless, within a couple months, in fact, a few women went to police and said that they saw Miller on these dating apps. So it's kind of an example of where actually law enforcement is carrying out through the justice system actions, and yet this man was still able to access and use these apps and repeat offend. What happens when somebody reports a case like this? What's the protocol that they follow? So part of that 2012 agreement on best industry practice with Kamala Harris, they also said they were going to implement what they called a rapid abuse reporting system. So when someone reports something, they're going to have a quick response. And some things in their public promises they've included is saying that they will encourage the victim to report to law enforcement. They have a ban first mentality and that they will basically because they own all of these apps, they will check and try and find him or her on one of their other company sites. So if you report someone on Tinder, they say they'll also check to see if he's on OkCupid. Part of the problems become that you are requesting different information on these sites. So if you sign up with your Facebook account on Tinder, but then your email on OkCupid, there is not a consistent way of being able to always find someone. Furthermore, we've talked to a lot of women who say they didn't get a response or they weren't encouraged to go to law enforcement. And even more than that, I guess we have seen that they do seem to uphold a ban first mentality, which means that as soon as someone's reported, they will take him off. However, we're kind of still looking into that and we're hoping to keep reporting on what happens when women say, hey, this thing happened to me offline. I'd like to give you more information about it. Part of the investigations that you guys did was 
to create a questionnaire and have women participate in that. You got a lot of responses there. And I think a third of women said that they were victims of sexual assault from people that they've met on online dating apps. Like I said, there hasn't been really a national or like a data look at this prevalence. So part of what we did in conjunction with a lot of help from other Columbia University departments in the public health realm and statistics department, we developed this exploratory questionnaire and over 1,200 women who had said they used a dating platform in the past 15 years reported that basically of those women, 30% were sexually assaulted. And that is really what led us to say, okay, this seems to be prevalent enough that we should really be looking into the responses and the safety measures behind these women's claims. Match and these other online dating apps, they really put the responsibility in the hands of the users to either be honest and, and you know do their due diligence on that front. But the big question really seems to be these online dating apps who are matching people, what is their responsibility on this? And I know there's been some lawsuits and some laws that tried to be enacted but there seems to be this one, the Communication Decency Act, which really kind of limits the liability for a lot of these companies. It protects them in a lot of cases. I find the Communication Decency Act really interesting. It was passed in 1996, which when you think about it, the internet was really not what it is today. It was just basically being born. And it has this provision called Section 230, which essentially says that an internet company is not held liable for third-party content. Now, this means that its intention is to protect websites from being held liable for their users' speech, which includes also images and video. So if you were on Yelp, it would protect Yelp from if you wrote a really scathing review of a restaurant or whatnot. However, it's really been used and very broadly to be applied not just to third-party content, even though that's what the Section 230 states, but also kind of the internal processes and protocol of companies. And you hear this Section 230 of the CDA coming up a lot right now with like Facebook and YouTube even, because it shields these internet companies from liability for things like offline user sexual assault and like reports and having to respond to reports and a bunch of other things. A lot of legal experts I talked to would say that they believe that there's a bit of a difference between content and design, which means these internet companies are not being held liable, not only for the third-party content, but the design of their actual websites. You guys still have a lot of follow-up efforts. You mentioned the questionnaire. We talked about it briefly. You're still looking for more participants to come forward and talk about their experiences also. That's correct. We're not done digging and we're still reporting. We're really excited to keep basically investigating and seeing and learning what not only Match Group, but other dating apps do in response. And we would love to hear from more users who've experienced or reported sexual assault to a dating app, people who've worked at the companies, law enforcement. And it's a confidential questionnaire and it can be found on propublica.org slash dating app. Elizabeth Pichani, a fellow at Columbia Journalism Investigations. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much, Oscar. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. 
I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.